0: So uh, I will confess to you all that knowledge is something I really like. Uh, Knowing things has always been a pretty big deal to me. Uh, I'm a fan of knowing answers and have felt pretty full of them my whole life. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's been my thing. Anyone else out there? Former Quiz Bowl team members at all from your youth, no? Uh, History Day, Science Olympiads, (laughs) Math Olympiads. When they signed me up to take the ACT in seventh grade, it was like Christmas came early. I thrilled to standardize tests. I brought brand new pencils for the day. Pre-sharpened number two Ticonderogas. You see now how this is not a bragging admission, but a humiliating confession, right? (laughs) Just like imagine young Amber as Hermione Granger, but without the world-saving adventures to bring out her finer qualities, right? That was me. It seems like I would have fit in well with the Corinthian church. Paul quotes their motto to them in that second reading from today in this passage, All of us possess knowledge. That's their motto. How's that for a church's mission statement? The Corinthians, to sum up, were like spiritual Olympians who believed that they really were the revelation of God on earth. Um, And partly, they had this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom because the city of Corinth itself was a cool metropolitan place to live. It was a port city, so people of all cultures and persuasions and ideas mixed together constantly in a way that they wouldn't have very far inland, right? Uh, And this gave them pride in their sense of worldly knowledge. It's like New York City versus Schenectady or something. Is that a good uh, analogy here? All right. But even if you weren't personally an obnoxious know-it-all kid, the Corinthians aren't too far from us as Episcopalians either. One of the defining characteristics of our denomination is that we value being able to engage thoughtfully with different ideas. Uh, An ad campaign for the Episcopal Church in the 1990s proclaimed that you don't have to check your mind at the door here. A true thing to say, but a phrase with maybe more than a hint of intellectual snobbery. Say love you. So, do you have a sense of who these Corinthian Christians were now? Paul had started their church and been their pastor and leader for a while, and then he went away to start more churches. So, when disagreements arose about what Christians ought to believe and do, the Corinthians wrote to their great teacher, Paul, and asked for answers. One of those questions was about whether it was okay for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, this probably sounds as relevant to your life as a list of Roman-era etiquette tips, but stay with me. When Christianity came into being, polytheism was the norm. In the Roman pantheon, there were gods for everything. Every rainstorm, every feeling, every bout of a stomach virus, and folks uh, appealed to these gods through statues depicting them and by sacrificing animals to them. When you're imagining this sacrifice, do not imagine a terrifying, bloody ritual to appease an angry God. Imagine that you are invited to a friend's house where they will be barbecuing a young calf that they just slaughtered. And your friends just happen to be doing so on this holy day dedicated to the God Mercury. Your friends will be grilling succulent steak and ribs, all with prayers at the altar of Mercury. And since Mercury never shows up to eat these sacrifices, the people in attendance get to eat them instead, right? It's a party, and it's a very normal one at that. But you converted to Christianity, and you have come to believe that the pantheon is a folly. There is one true God who hears your prayers through Christ, and the great and abiding sin of our ancient faith is idolatry. The Corinthian Christians are divided on whether it is okay to eat this meat, and I promise it matters. We're getting there. (laughs) See, half the church know the answer to this question. They know the true God and do not believe in idols or anything that the idols stand for. So if they eat meat sacrificed to an idol, it is the same as eating meat sacrificed to nothing at all. You go to a friend's barbecue who dedicates the meat to mercury, and you shrug and say to yourself, "Ah, empty prayers, nothing has changed about this very nice steak, and you are right, and you dig in. But the other half of the church believe this is wrong and are dismayed that their brothers and sisters would partake in what is to them clearly idolatry. They can't get their heads around the fact that monotheism means that there's nothing to fear from this idol meat and are viewed as superstitious and weak by the intellectually superior Christians. Paul writes to them and says to our intellectually superior forebears that they are exactly right about the meat. He says, We know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul says, you're right. But then he says, you have knowledge, but you do not have love. So you're strong enough to eat at the temple of an idol and not let it affect you. But your friends with weaker consciences will see you do this, And they will stumble in the faith because they will think they are able to do the same thing. It will hurt them where it does not hurt you. Paul says having the right answer doesn't get you as far as you think in this new community. He wants those with stronger consciences to care for those with weaker ones. Knowledge puffs up, he writes, but love builds up. I will say, this is not anti-intellectualism. To not use your good and God-given mind to follow God is as great a sin as not using your heart or soul or body to follow God. But to use the mind at the exclusion of love and strength and sacrifice, that is where we fall short. Paul does not say that those of a stronger conscience are wrong. He says the right answer is not all that matters here. Harmony comes from people with differing thoughts learning to care for the other in our in our weaknesses. And as I thought about this, I thought really... Having all the answers is a kind of a weakness, too. One of my personal great saints of the faith was a man named Tommy, the junior warden at my first Episcopal church, who let me help him care for our crumbling, historic nave. Uh, my nickname was the Junior Junior Warden. I wanted to learn how to fix things, and he taught me how to unclog pipes and restart the boiler and how to climb up to the bell tower. I happened to be going through a deconstruction of faith and pestered him constantly with my issues concerning predestination or Christology or salvation, subjects that Tommy never warmed to, even as a saint." But as my intellectual certainties kept crumbling, our work around the church kept building. Leaks fixed, switches repaired, balusters replaced. And one day, I don't remember exactly when, I looked around and saw the congregation for the first time, like like actually saw beyond my own self. And realized that all the work we were doing to keep was keeping this old building up. To be a place where all of these people brought these same struggles and questions and hopes and fears that I carried too. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I know as you find yourself caring for this place... You'll find something sound and immovable being built in you. Amen.